listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to be back with y'all. Last week I missed, and I will tell you why in two weeks. Okay, I'm gonna save that story, because uh, it's not great for me, but it's not a bad story. Okay, so um, go ahead in your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 11. Uh, if you're a guest of ours this morning, what we typically do is we work through books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Exodus. I think this is our 10th week. We're in chapter 11. Uh, when I was in seminary, the first two uh, semesters of Greek, we called them baby Greek, right? Because it was just the basics. And so you would just cover grammar and just simple stuff uh, to get you to where you started actually doing some kind of the, more of the heavy lifting. And our professor was this great guy. He was kind of a, a nerdy dude. I loved him. His name was uh, Dr. Johnston. And he was everything you expect a Greek professor to be. That was him, right? Because you don't just become a Greek professor unless you're, you get to certain passions. And so, uh, and he would teach us something, how to do something and say, okay, I want you to do this for now. But then later, I'll, I'll tell you the real thing we're gonna do. And we would be like, well, why? Why don't you just tell us now? And his response would always be the same. He'd kind of look with a kind of a grin and he'd be like, you can't handle the truth. And he would just yell at us and we'd be like, okay. And the idea was, you'll understand one day the significance of this. Right now, you can't handle it. But you'll see then, when you're in your fourth and fifth and sixth semester, then you'll understand. And that, that really is kind of this text we're gonna jump into today. It's one of the most climatic events in the Old Testament, certainly in the book, the 10th plague. But as big and significant as it is in, in the narrative, in the, in the uh, history of Israel and, and even in Egypt, there's a greater significance that they can't handle the truth at that point. But we living three, 3,500 years later, we look back and now that we have the whole story, oh, I see, now we can handle the truth. There's something bigger going on than just this plague uh, that's going to bring the exodus about. There's actually, I don't know if you knew this, there's actually two exoduses in the Old Testament. There's this one, and there's another one that most people don't know about, because it's, it's not as exciting. The people of Israel are off in land, uh, and God just one day moves on a guy named Cyrus's heart. Cyrus wakes up and says, I think it's time for the Hebrews to go home. And they go home. There's no plagues. There's no Red Sea. They just go home. You can read about it in the book of Ezra. So why here does God bring this dramatic conclusion, this 10th plague and all this? Because there's something bigger than just going, uh, just, just, just what's going on there. And it's big for them and it's big for us. And so we're going to look at that today in chapter 11 and really half of 12. Um, what we've seen is nine plagues so far. Each plague has systematically been attacking one of the Egyptian deities, showing that they are not God, that, that the God of Israel is the one true God. And where we left off at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh says, the day I see you, you're going to die. Moses says, you're right. You're not going to see me again. And so what we have in chapter 11 is actually a recap of, bef- of before that conversation. Right, so 11, let's just jump in. This is what God tells Moses before he goes to Pharaoh in verses one through three. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So on their way out, God says, ask your neighbors for their stuff. Ooh, I like that. Can I have that? And they, and they do. And they ask for their stuff. And they give it to them, which is all 
a fulfillment of prophecy that God made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. When God shows up and says, no, for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That happened, all right? And will be servants there. That happened. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That happened. But I will bring judgment on that nation. That's happening. That they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's, what's he's, that's what he's talking about here. So that's, what's, that's what God tells Moses. And now here's what Moses tells Pharaoh. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh, verse four. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. So God basically announces judgment through Moses to Pharaoh, all the firstborn, from the little kitty cats in the field to the son of Pharaoh, gone. So what's the significance of the firstborn? Why the firstborn? A couple things. Number one, Israel was God's firstborn. And so because Egypt has enslaved them for 400 years, God is bringing justice on the firstborn. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Remember, Pharaoh himself is considered God. He is considered, he is supposed to be the son of Ra. He's supposed to be the living incarnation of the God, Horus, who's the falcon God. And you got a little picture of the falcon God here. All right, he's walking in the park with his girlfriend or something, I don't know. But that's, that's Pharaoh, Horus, the living God. And what happened in Egyptian you know, lore was after the living God died, he became Osiris and his son became Horus. So you can just you get to be multiple gods in your life, I guess, if you're Pharaoh. But the reason why God takes the firstborn of Pharaoh, because that's supposed to be a living deity and God is showing, he's not. That's not God. I'm God. That's the idea, okay? Not to mention the firstborn in that culture, all the hopes and dreams were in your, in your family as, as the firstborn. You didn't, you know, when, when, you, when you died and passed on your stuff, you didn't kind of have a will that said, okay, your child number one gets the car, child number two gets the boat, child number three gets the trailer, child number four gets, the... you didn't split up your inheritance. Why? Because then you split up your family's influence and power. So it all went to the firstborn so that you, you, you kept your influence and your power. So when you take out the firstborn of Egypt, you're taking out their hopes and their dreams and their future. So there's multiple things going on here. And God says, this is what's going to happen. And verse six, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such that there's never been, nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all your people with you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses is, he's mad. Because this whole thing could have been, this whole ordeal could have been just gone if Pharaoh stopped hardening his heart and just back at the snakes, back in the beginning would have said, yep, you need to go. But he hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, and now this is going to happen. Judgment is coming. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen. He's not going to listen to you that the wonders, my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. This is, let's, let's just be transparent. This is a challenging text. It is a heavy idea. You can't, you can't just skate over, right? There's a weightiness to it. God is going to come into Egypt and there's going to be people who die because of it. You can't escape it. What do we do with that? 
as Christians. Because I know the tendency is to like hide from texts like this and just go off to the happy texts and shy away from this. But here's the point. If we do that, we miss the warning. There's a reason it's here. There's a warning here. And the the point is this. The big picture is this. Judgment will happen one day. Jesus himself said there's going to be two lines. There's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. There's going to be a judgment and I will stand in judgment. And you want to be in the sheep line, not the goat line. Because this is the line to life and pleasure and joy everlasting. And this other line is the line to condemnation and wrath. So Jesus teaches himself that there will be judgment. And what we do when we come to passages like this that are uncomfortable and make us kind of squirmish in our our seats a little bit, we we like to say, well, you know, my God is a God of love. My God would never do something like this. And we, we judge, we sit in judgment of God's judgment sometimes, don't we? And we, we don't like the fact that God would look down and make evaluations and judge a people and that some people will be included and some people will be excluded based on his judgment. But the irony is when we do that, we're doing the very same thing to God. We're standing back, we're evaluating God, we're making a judgment and saying, okay, I'm either in or out with God based on what he's done. And when we do all that, we miss the point. This is a warning. There's, there's big ideas going on here that were true of Egypt and there's big ideas that are true of us. Here's the first one. First big idea from this text is that death is coming, right? Very specific, very narrow at this point. The firstborn of everybody. Death is coming, right? True then, true now. Big picture. The death rate is 100%. I don't know if you knew that or not. There's only actually two people in all of human history that have escaped. Two people. And they lived a long time ago, just so you know. They weren't like living down the street in Savannah. Yeah, that guy, he never died. Enoch and Elijah. Elijah got rescued in a fiery chariot. Enoch walked with God and was not. I don't even know what that means, but he didn't die. Those are the only two. And I don't know how many people have ever lived. I tried to Google it and no one knew an answer. Siri didn't know. Uh, So if Siri doesn't know, no one knows. But I figure let's just double the amount of people alive today. If there's 7 billion people alive today, let's say it's 14 billion people have ever lived. Two out of 14 billion have made it. Not good odds. It's not, not looking good, right? Death is coming. And here's what you need to know about that. And this is significant, is that death is the enemy. Death is the bad guy. I know we get our theology sometimes from from Disney. Uh, Do not take your theology from the Lion King. Okay? I know know, death is just part of the circle of life. Akuna Matata, you know, it's a good thing, right? The lion eats the zebra, and then the lion goes potty, and then he fertilizes the land which the zebra eats. It's just one happy circle. Circle of life. Circle of life, little Elton John, right? It's happy. Ask the zebra how happy he is when his leg is getting pulled behind his head. It's not happy. It's just not. And in a more serious note, how happy is it when someone you love gets moved to hospice, is in the ICU with tubes? It's not happy because death is the enemy. It's, it's, it's the bad guy. It's not, it was not God's intent. It's not some circle of life. Death is the enemy and death is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. So Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they brought death to this world and it's not good. What God brings is life. 
What sin brings is death. And it's coming. It's coming. Let's continue in our text. Verse, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, here's the details are important now. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall you shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. It's the religious new year, not the, not the civil new year, okay? They have a different date for the civil new year. But this is Aviv, uh, Abib, March, April-ish. It's different every year because they have a 360-day calendar. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what you can eat, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. The idea is this, you got a small family, you can share with your neighbors. You got a big family, you get a lamb for your family, okay? So it's all based on how many people are in your family and how many people can eat a lamb. That's how you pick a lamb. And you're gonna take it, he said, on the 10th, Day. That's significant. All right. Verse five. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Got to be a perfect lamb. Okay. If you're like, oh, look, there's a three-legged lamb. Let's adopt that one. Doesn't, you can't do that. You can do that to the dogs. Do not do it for your lamb. If it's got a crusty eye, it's got like fur missing, you know, it's got mange. Can't pick that lamb. All right. Perfect, spotless lamb. One year old. Why one year? Because that's a lamb in a prime of life. With all its vigor, it's, where, it's prime of life. It's its 20s, 30s, 50s, whatever the prime of life is now. I don't even know, all right? But that's what it is, a prime of life. Uh, you could take it from the sheep or the goats and you keep it until the 14th day of the month. Okay, this is significant. You got it on the 10th day. You're keeping it to the 14th day. How many days is that? Four days, very good. You guys are, you guys passed kindergarten, very good. All right, you're gonna keep the lamb in your house for four days. Why? You're gonna get a chance to check it out thoroughly. You're gonna have a chance to inspect it, make sure it's got no blemishes. Also, there's gonna be some bonding, isn't there? I mean, you got kids, you bring a lamb in the house, they're gonna be you know, teaching it to fetch or shake its hand. I don't know what they're gonna do, but they're gonna love that lamb. Just like any animal you bring into the house, they're gonna love it. They're gonna care for it. They're gonna name it. We're gonna call him, you know, Sean the sheep. I don't know what you're gonna call him. We're gonna call him something, right? But there's gonna be some, some bonding that takes place. And then on the fourth day, 14th of Aviv, you're gonna kill your lamb at twilight. That's the early evening. Verse eight. And then they shall, uh, excuse me, verse seven. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. The, the word that's gonna be used down in, chapter, in verse 22 is you're going to touch. You're gonna, you're gonna pour the blood into a basin. That's what they do. They would drain the blood, they pour it into a basin. You get a piece of hyssop, which is like a branch that can, can hold. Imagine a piece of branch with uh, uh, Spanish moss, right? You can dip it and you, and you can write on that. That's the idea. And you're gonna dip it in there and you're going to touch the doorposts on the sides and on the top. The, the word is very specific in 22. He's gonna touch. It's the same word that Isaiah uses when the angel touches his lips with the coal, okay? So you're gonna touch it on the top and on the sides, not on the floor because you do not tread on the blood because of its value. It's gonna look something like this, okay? Something like this is what you're going for, right? Verse eight, they shall eat the flesh that night Roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You're gonna, it's gonna be one piece. You're not cutting it up into lamb chops or lamb sandwiches. One lamb sitting right there in front of you. Whole, roasted. It's the quickest way to cook it. 
You're going to eat it with unleavened bread. Why unleavened? Because bread takes time for the yeast to spread. So we don't have time because we're leaving in the morning is the idea. So you're eating unleavened bread. You're eating it with bitter herbs. Why? Because your time in, in slavery was bitter. So, so you have a hole right in front of you so you can see it. You see the lamb. You, you taste the bitterness of, of slavery, the, the quickness of leaving. You're eating in haste. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it. Your belt fastened. Literally your, your loins girded up. So they'd have these long robes. They would wrap it between their legs and they'd pull it up and they'd tie their belt so you could run. It kind of looks like a guy in a diaper or a toga, but that it made you be able to go quicker. You, you're gonna eat like that. You're gonna have your staff in your hand. You're gonna, you're gonna have your sandals on your feet. You're gonna eat it in haste. Why? You're leaving. You're leaving tonight. It's a picture of, hey, this is not just like a family meal sitting around talking, laughing. This is not Thanksgiving. This is, let's go. This is dad. Okay, I got the keys. Everyone suitcase hit their feet. All right, throw that PB&J down. Let's go, let's go, let's go. That's, that's what's going on here. It's the Lord's Passover, right? That is what's taking place. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land on Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, notice the repetition, I, 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 I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so death is coming. And here's the second idea I want you to see is that no one is actually safe. Who's in danger here? Egypt, yes. Israel, yes. The, he says, I'm coming. So you, you, you gotta do something because I am coming. Everybody is in danger from the poorest to the richest, from Pharaoh down to the slave girl. There is no one safe. No one's dog, no one's cat, no one's anything. No one is safe, right? No one's safe then. Here's the bigger point. If death is coming and death is a result of sin, what's that mean for us? Anyone here? not guilty of sin, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't like that language, guilty. So we, we, we plead no contest, which means I'm guilty, I just don't wanna say it, right? We, we don't like the concept of guilt or we just compare ourselves to others. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as, and we always go to like the worst. I'm not as bad as old Hitler or Saddam Hussein or I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Epstein, who didn't kill himself, all right? I, I, I'm not, I, we always compare to some guy that's 10 times worse than us. But the standard is not, it's not Hitler, it's God. And we don't, if we're honest, we don't even keep our own standard. I heard a preacher say a couple weeks ago, if you put a, a recorder around your neck and you recorded everything that you thought every, everyone else should do for, for a year, what you expected of the people, that person needs to run more, that person needs to work harder, that person needs to get better grades, that person needs to study harder, that person needs to sleep more. Everything that you expected other people to do that you would not even meet your own standards, let alone God's standards, which is perfection, right? For all have sinned, there is none righteous, no, not one. So here's, this, this is all the bad news, but here's the good news. Death is coming, no one is safe, but God provided a way out. What does he say? Verse, jump down to verse 21. Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself. 
according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of, his, of the door of his house until morning. I am coming through. I am gonna execute judgment. I am going to execute uh, death. But I will pass over and you will escape if what? If I see the blood. If I see the blood. God provides a way of escape. And look, if God just wanted to judge, God could just judge. Like if, I, if there's a bug in the house and everyone's like, oh, kill the cockroach. I don't like have a debate with it. Well, if you would just leave now, Mr. Cockroach, you'll be fine. No, we just go and step on the bug. Or the palmetto bug, whatever you guys call them here. We call them cockroaches up in the north. If you guys have a, a more spiritual southern name for them, that's fine. You just squash the bug. If God just wanted to squash us, he could. But he has a conversation with us. He tells us this is the way out. The God who is bringing judgment tells you the way to escape. Which shows that it is the last thing that God wants to do. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to escape the judgment. So he provides a way out. What is the way out? A little lamb. A little lamb. See, something is going to die in the house. It's either going to be the firstborn or it's gonna be the lamb. But something is going to die. So the lamb is, key word, a substitute. The lamb is a substitute. The lamb dies instead. And, and you know who's not gonna miss this that night is the firstborn. Any firstborn? How many of y'all are firstborns? I got a bunch of firstborn, I'm a firstborn. I got a lot of firstborns. In my house that I grew up in, there was three firstborns. My brother, younger brother, he's the only one. He would have been, been all happy. Everyone else gone. He could do what he wanted, right? The firstborn is not gonna miss the significance of this because the firstborn is the one whose life is in danger. And you can imagine back then, this is the first time it's happened. This little, this little Shaun the Sheep, whatever you call it, been in your house for four days. Everyone's loving it, braiding it, little hair, you know, teaching it to fetch, whatever. And on the fourth day, dad grabs the lamb and, and pulls his head up and brings a, a knife across his throat. And the, you can imagine a little 10, 12 year old, daddy, why? Daddy, why? Why, daddy? What would that dad say? Son, because I love you. And I wanted to save you. So this lamb had to die so that you could live. He died in your place so that you might have life. Can you, can you see why God did it this way? Can you start to see? They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't understand all this. They don't even have any Bible written. But us with the whole scripture, do you see what God has been doing? From the beginning, this is God's plan. From Genesis 1, before Genesis 1, the predetermined plan was that God was going to send a lamb. And he, and he constantly has given you little snippets, little trailers of it all through the Old Testament. It starts in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin and they're hiding in the bushes with their little, little fig leaves. What does God do? He kills an animal. He says, your covering is not gonna be sufficient. Let me give you something that is. And he covers them with an animal. A few chapters later, Cain and Abel bring their offerings. God says to this one, this is not acceptable. He says to the one that is a blood offering, a sacrifice this one is. 
few chapters later, Abram on top of the, Abraham on top of the mountain about to kill his firstborn son because God told him to offer him. And he stops his hand and he says, now I know that you fear God. And he provides a substitute, a lamb. Constantly throughout, the writer Isaiah, the prophet, he says of the Messiah that he was like a lamb, a sheep, silent before its shearers. When Jesus shows up at the Jordan River at 30 years old and his cousin who, who's standing there baptizing people sees him, he says, behold, the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Peter, looking back to it, says, know that you were ransomed from your futile ways of heritage from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb. God provided the lamb for us. This, this is the truth that you can handle. You can see they didn't get it. They didn't grasp it. But you, you, you can see it, right? This is what God has been doing. And there, these, these two lambs, this Passover lamb and then this, this Savior, this Messiah, they, they're the same, right? This, this lamb was perfect and blameless and spotless, one year old. Jesus, God became a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, just like that lamb. He was in, this one was one year old, in the prime of his life. Jesus, 30, 33 years old, in the prime of his life. This one had to be inspected for four days. There's four gospels. You can inspect Jesus' life perfectly. You have plenty of material. This one was killed in the early evening on Passover. Jesus was killed in the early evening on Passover. This one that used hyssop and they dipped it in blood. This one was offered on hyssop a drink because he said, I thirst. These, these lambs were born and, and raised. You know where they were born and raised? Outside the city of Bethlehem. Where was this one born? Bethlehem. These lambs by Jesus' time were brought into Jerusalem on what day? Palm Sunday, they rode into Jerusalem. This one rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. These, these lambs, he could not break their bones. He's gonna say later in chapter 12, you cannot break the bones of the Passover lamb. Jesus on the cross in the middle, thief on his right, thief on his left. They come to break their legs so that they will die quickly because it's Sabbath. They break this guy's leg. They break this guy's leg. They come to Jesus. He is already gone. Why? Because the Passover lamb could not be broken. I couldn't make it, I couldn't make something like this up. This is what God has been doing from the beginning, right? This is what he is doing. He has provided a way of escape, a lamb. This is why we told you in the beginning, the Exodus is your story, it's my story. You were a slave, you were freed by the blood of the lamb so that you experience the presence of God and the freedom of God as you live with him forever. That's Exodus. That's Exodus, that's us, right? Can you see it? Can you handle that truth? Right, this is what God has been doing. Let me give you three thoughts. Three, right out of the text, real quickly. All right, three things that Moses actually tells us to do. Right, and remember, it all points to this. I showed you this earlier. Right, what does this look like? This is what God has been doing. That's why it's three touches. The three points of the cross that Jesus will be on. And so what do we do? Number one, we remember it. That's what he tells them. Verse 14. This day shall be a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Jump down to verse 24. 
You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. When you come to the land of the Lord, he will give you. As he promised, you shall keep the service. This is something they were supposed to do every year. There's three times a year the men of Israel had to come to Jerusalem. This was one of them for the Passover feast, right? When the temple was finally built. Why? It was supposed to be, he, God wanted them to remember their salvation. Every, not just, oh, okay, that was great. He wanted them to constantly come back to it. You were slaves, I set you free, I let you escape so you could experience me, me forever. And the same is true for us, which is why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said what? This is my body. And he took the cup and he said, this is the, the blood of the new covenant. What was he doing? He was celebrating a Passover meal. <laughs> By chance? No. Why? Because it was, for them, again, radical. They had done this their whole lives. But this is what Jesus is doing that night. He's saying, guys, let me tell you a secret. Let me tell you 11 guys a secret because Judas was gone. This whole thing has been about me from the get-go. This is my body. It's broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I am the lamb of God taking away your sin. That's what I am. And he wants us to remember it. And let me tell you, a, a people who remember that they were slaves and now free, are they a thankful people? I know some of you woke up this morning and you were all like, oh, man, I, I'm, this is one of those days you were tempted to watch online. Don't lie right now. You were tempted. And, you know, you guys came to the last service. The 8 o'clock service will be closer to the throne of Jesus in heaven than y'all, okay? Because they were here at 8. It was pitch black at 8 and raining. So, but there's a grumpiness factor, right? A complaining factor. And this, when we remember salvation, it brings joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, David says. That's why the people of God are, are called to be marked by joy, not grumbling. And just let me give you a kind of a spoiler alert. God, when they start grumbling... It doesn't go well for them in this book. When they start complaining, I don't like manna, I don't like this, I like salad. God gets very frustrated with them because the mark of, the, of, the, of a Christian is joy. It's just a reminder. And when you remember your salvation, it brings joy. And he wants us to. That's why we celebrate the table. It reminds you, hey, you're loved. You may not feel loved out there, you may not feel loved at your house or in your apartment or whatever. You are loved. You may not feel special, but you are special enough for the Lamb of God to come for you. You may not feel accepted. You are accepted because the Lamb of God took away your sins. It's a reminder of all those things. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. We're supposed to teach. Look what he says. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Because remember, there's going to get kids that grow up. They didn't see the plagues. They didn't see the Red Sea. They don't have a Bible yet. They don't have little, you know, ESV kids Bibles, right? So what are we doing here, dad? Why are you killing that lamb? What are we doing? He said, you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Why? He passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed and worshiped. He said, I want you to tell the kids what I did. I destroyed Egypt and I saved you. This is what we saw a couple weeks ago when God says, I want you to tell your grandkids that I was harsh with Egypt. And I know that this is not one of those things where like, oh, I'm gonna tell kids about this and that. I mean, this, you're like, it seems a little, I don't know if I should tell my kids about this. Let's just focus on this. I, don't, I shouldn't tell my kids about sin and judgment and condemnation. God actually would disagree with you. He says, no, tell them that I did this and tell them I did this. 
And what's common, and this is probably my generation's fault. Generation X is pretty much a perfect generation except for a few things, okay? But here's one of the things that we are very flawed with. Because we are latchkey kids, right? Because we came home to the empty house, so to speak, our philosophy of parenting has been, we'll let them figure it out. Let them do what they're gonna do, right? Uh, and, and that's especially, that's crept into the church where people are now saying, well, I'm just gonna let my kids come to their own conclusions about God, I'm gonna let them figure it out. They can make their own decision about God. Let me tell you why that's silly. Because they're already gonna do that, right? You're, you're desiring something that you already have. That's like me saying, I would really like to live in a town that has a beach that tattoos are required. I already live there. It's called Tybee, right? We're there. Right? You don't need to long for that. It's here. Your kids will grow up and they will make decisions about God. You can't change that. He's not saying to change it. He's saying, tell them the truth. Tell them who I am. Tell them what I've done. Tell them who they are. That's what he's saying. Not in a harsh way. Just this is who God is. And I know, again, this is my generation's fall, I think. We've said, well, it's a little alert. We'll let be neutral and let them you know, kind of decide in a vacuum. There's no vacuum. The culture is not a vacuum. The culture is running a headlong opposed to God. Remember, the culture is under the power, the prince of the power of the air. So the culture is not gonna give you a vacuum. The culture is gonna tell you that you need to run away from truth. So it is our job to tell them and tell them young. Just like what we tell our other kids. If you wait till your kids are 17 and 18 to talk about cell phones, y'all, what, what have you been in a, you know, sleep for 15 years? You can't wait till they're 17. You start talking early about dating and all these things, right? Why? Because you, you want them to understand because they're gonna learn it on the bus. First bus they ride, they're gonna learn something. So you better get ahead early. This is why what we do with kids is vital. Just teaching them who God is and who we are. Again, not making decisions for them. They will grow up. They will make decisions. They can buy in or they can reject. That's on them. But we're supposed to tell them the truth. So you tell them the truth. This is who God is. We tell the kids the truth. We also tell everybody. I think, I was thinking about it. What if you live next to an Egyptian or lived next to a buddy and you look out the window, it's like it's getting close to night and there's no blood on his door and that's, that's your golfing buddy or that's your, that you, that's your shopping friend. What are you gonna do in that moment? Well, I didn't like their dog anyway. Their dog's a firstborn, I think, so... You're going to run over and you're going to say, come to my house. Or you're going to say, hey, you need to, you need to get, we need to get a lamb. We need to do this. We need to do this because judgment is coming. There's, a, there's an urgency there. Again, back to the whole point. There's going to be two lines one day, a line of sheep, a line of goats. And everyone's going to be in one of those lines. And if you do not want someone you love to be in that line, that's why there's an urgency. We can't make people believe, but we can say, come into my house. Come into my house, we're under the blood. You can point people, right? You can point people. So you teach, and then the last thing is this, and we'll cover this more next week, is live like free people. Live, there's a difference between living as a slave and living as free, right? I mean, pretty significant difference. And, and God is calling them to freedom. In fact, he's gonna, he's gonna give them, uh, and we don't have time to unpack it completely, and you can read it later. You, you jump back to verse 14, he says this. He said, this will be a day 
for, this shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, the person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done in those days, but what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. And he's gonna go on, you can read it later. He's gonna say, don't eat leaven. No leaven, no leaven, no leaven, no leaven, no leaven, no leaven. Like seven times he says, don't eat leaven. Big picture what's going on. You have three huge Jewish festivals all taking place in one week. There's only seven Jewish feasts and three of them take place in one week. You have Passover on Friday, feast of unleavened breads on Saturday to Saturday and on Sunday, you have the Feast of first fruits, which he doesn't even mention here, right? And this one he's talking about is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where on Saturday, you have a big old party, and then the following Saturday, you have a big old party, and then in between, you just don't eat any leaven, right? No leaven in the house. And even today, in the Jewish cultures, they'll, someone will go hide some yeast in the house, and the kids will go find it, and then they'll sweep it out, and then, you know, just as a significance here. The idea is no leaven in the house. Get it all out. We're eating matzah all week, all right? That's the point. You say, why? Because leaven in the scripture is constantly a picture of sin. It pictures sin. It starts small and it grows. It permeates, impacts the whole loaf, right? And so Paul, picking up on this idea in 1 Corinthians says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven of malice and evil, with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's his point. Jesus freed you, so live as free. Don't, don't run back to the very thing that enslaved you. Don't run back to pornography. Don't run back to addiction. Don't run back to a relationship that enslaved you. Don't run back to grumpiness or dishonoring your parents or lying. Or, don't run back. Live as free people. And notice the language. Celebrate. I know everyone thinks, oh, God is just down on it. No, God creates feasts so the people of Israel will celebrate. They celebrate on a Saturday, they celebrate on a Saturday. Paul says, celebrate the festival, celebrate your freedom and act as free people. Don't run back to your sin. If you're living with your girlfriend and you call yourself a Christian, okay, then move out because you need to break from the old, right? If you're lying to your parents you need, you need, and you call yourself a Christian, you need, to, you need to get rid of that. You need to come clean. If you're stealing from your employer, if you're fill in the blank, if you're a Christian, he says, get rid of it. Put to death that which is earthly in you. That's the point. Live as free people, right? Because Christ has set you free. So live as free. That's the idea. And that's what they're supposed to remember in the Feast of Unleavened Breads. And then they'll have first fruits, which pictures Jesus' resurrection. But again, they didn't see it, but here it is. Death is coming. No one is safe except for those who are under the blood. So we should be thankful. And here's the other thing. Again, if I'm the firstborn living then, you know what I'm, I'm making sure of? I'm making sure dad did everything right. Right? Hey, dad, you sure? Did you, you put all three, right? You put all, you didn't just do one. And I'm gonna be, I'm not gonna be at the door. I'm gonna be in the back closet, just being sure. Because everything depends on if you're under the blood. Everything. Everything. And so I think for us this morning, just a reminder. Hey, ask yourself, 
Because it doesn't matter. It's not firstborn anymore. It's everybody. Are you under the blood? You can't rely on your daddy and you can't rely on your grandpa and you can't rely on your mom. You can't rely on your sister. Are you under the blood? Because we are saved really in the same way they're saved. How are they saved? They put their faith in what God had said that they would get in the house, that they would stay under the blood, that they would kill the Passover lamb. They trusted what God said. We are saved the exact same way. Just the, the, the revelation has been fuller. You are saved by faith, by putting your faith in the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So you have to ask yourself the question, are you under the blood? Because we're gonna all be in that one of those two lines, one leading to life and one leading to condemnation. And God wants you to be in the lamb line. Why? Because he took away your sin at the cross. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna remember that. We're gonna take the table. Uh, if you're a Christian this morning, we invite you to celebrate with us. Uh, if you didn't get a cup on your way in, just raise your hand and we'll have some folks passing them out. Um, they can grab it. Here's, here's just what I want you to do. Just, these guys are gonna come up and play for a few moments. Just take some time to be thankful, to uh, search your heart, if you came in grumbling and complaining because it was cold and it's supposed to be March and what is going on and you know, uh, or you're just, just have a grudge about somebody, just search your heart. Use this time of, of confession and repentance. If we, are fi- if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive. Why? Because the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. And to remember, to thank him, to celebrate. And then when you're ready, you take on your own this morning. Just take on your own at your own, at your own uh, time. Uh, And then you can stand uh, when you're ready and continue to sing. Let me pray. Father, you have given us this remembrance, Jesus telling us to, as we take the body, the bread, it represents his body broken for us. As we take uh, the cup that it pictures the blood of the new covenant shed for us. And so we would be thankful because we we were in danger and yet you, you took our punishment, you took our wrath. And so we celebrate in remembrance of that. Thank you for the opportunity to do so. In Christ's name.